as we move into the Thanksgiving week, you know, I, I can't help but reflect on all that we have to be thankful for as individuals, as a church body, and as a nation. We live in a, in a land where we're free to worship the Lord as we see fit or not worship. or I mean, we, we have freedom in this country, and, and that's, a, that's a huge blessing. You know, we, we're free to come, and nobody tries to burn down our church while we're here. No one tries to shoot us as we leave. Right? And it's not like that in a lot of places in the world. We're tremendously blessed in that way. We live in, in a nation of, of great opportunity. We live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. We have homes, we have food, we have clothes. And I'm so grateful for, for the family that the Lord has given me. I'm so blessed to have such a wonderful wife, four kids. My fifth one's going to be born this week, which I'm so grateful. Friday, by the way. Uh, if, if she doesn't come before Friday, she's scheduled to be induced on Friday. So, so by next Sunday, little Hannah will be here. Um, but above all those things, I'm so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that the Father saw fit to send his only begotten Son to die in my place, to pay the penalty for my sins. And it's my prayer that as we, as we go forward, that we would realize the magnitude of what the Lord has done for us and that we would respond by using all the blessings that he's bestowed on us to further his kingdom, and to further his causes. And it's my prayer that the church would use these blessings just to, to, to really to do the work of the ministry and to see the kingdom of God expanded across the globe. This morning we're going to begin to look at John chapter 17. And Jesus, at this point in the gospel, he's preparing for what is literally the biggest event in, in all of human history, right? He's getting ready at this point to go to the cross. He's preparing himself and his disciples for the events that are going to unfold in the next couple hours. <coughs> and this entire chapter, John 17, is actually one single prayer that Jesus is praying for all the believers, you know, oftentimes we hear, you know, that Matthew chapter 6, our Father who art in heaven prayer, referred to as the Lord's prayer. But really, that should probably be called the disciples' prayer, right? Because that's for us to pray. And, and John chapter 17 here is actually the Lord's prayer. This is a prayer that our Lord offered up to the Father on our behalf. And, and this is what's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And the subject of this high priestly prayer is us. Jesus is going before the Father on our behalf. And so as we open up the passage, I think that there's a lot of great lessons for us in here. There's a lot of examples for us to follow in our own personal prayer lives. So we're going to open up to John chapter 17, verse 1, and see if we can't tease some of those lessons out of the text here. <clears throat> it says, 
after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. After Jesus said this, said what? Remember the last four chapters, that's what, right? Matthew, or John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, that whole, the whole upper room discourse. Right? All the things that he said over that last Passover meal and that stroll towards Gethsemane. And we've spent months in these chapters looking at Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, talking about the vine and the branches, talking about abiding in Christ, talking about the, 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 the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But all these things, remember, they took place over one meal and one little stroll towards the garden, right? Jesus telling the disciples about his impending death. And so there's been a lot going on at these meals. And, and after these things, it says, after Jesus had, had told them all the things at the meal, after Jesus had gone on that walk with them, Jesus gives up this prayer to the Father on behalf of the disciples. It says, after these things, Jesus looked up into heaven and prayed. It's sort of an interesting note, and it really doesn't have anything to do with the study. But it says that Jesus looked towards heaven. In those days, it was pretty typical for a person to stand up when they prayed, and they would raise their hands towards heaven when they prayed. You know, in some churches today, you know, you, we fold our hands and bow our heads. Some churches have a little a little pad that you can kneel on when you pray, right? Sometimes you pray out loud. Sometimes you pray silently. Sometimes we pray with our eyes open. Sometimes we pray with our eyes closed. I remember I spent some time in Russia, and, um, and as soon as you would pray, everybody stood up because God clearly couldn't hear the prayers of a seated person, right? And, and so a lot of times we have these different attitudes towards prayer and, and the proper posture of prayer. You know, some people are very adamant that you need to be a certain way in a certain position. You need to pray a certain way. And, and I think that that's kind of wrong. I think it's not the where we do it. It's not the position that we do it in. I think it's, I think it's that we do it. Right? It's that we spend time in prayer, in sincerity, with humility. And I don't think the Lord really cares if we're kneeling or standing when we pray. I don't think he really cares if our eyes are open or they're closed. I think he just cares that, that we're coming before him. It says that Jesus looked into heaven and began to pray. And we see here that he was praying out loud. And it doesn't say that he was praying out loud. So how do we know that? Well, it's written, right? John wrote it down. He must have heard it. Ergo, Jesus prayed out loud. So Jesus looks into heaven. And he begins to pray. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, who for all time had dwelt in the heavens in, in, in perfect fellowship with the Father. Right? Scripture teaches that, that Jesus was, was born of a virgin. That he was born into humanity. He became a, he became a man. We talk about the incarnation, right? The Latin root of that word is carne, meat, right? Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us. He moved among us. 
but he came for one reason, right? Well, we, we, we see his history in the Gospels, that he was born of a woman, that he grew up, all these things, but it was for one reason that he came. Jesus came to die. That's the whole reason Jesus was born, was to die. It says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, and I like how the New Living Translation puts it. It says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain from before the foundations of the world. From eternity past, it has always been the plan of God for Jesus to become a man and to go to the cross and to pay for the penalty of the sins of humanity. And sure, Jesus did other things while he was here. Right? He did great things, didn't he? Right? He proclaimed the gospel. He, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He, he fed the multitudes. He, he spoke and he calmed the storm. He walked on the water. But all those things were secondary. He, he just did those while he was here. But that's not why he came. Jesus Christ came to this world to die. He came to pay the penalty for our sins, for your sins, and for my sins. And so Jesus here, he looks to heaven, he says, my hour has come. My time is here. It's time to do that one thing that I came to do. So he says, Lord, glorify me so that I can give glory back to you. That word glorify in Greek is doxazo. And it's where we get the word doxology, right? When we talk about a doxology in terms of church, we're talking usually about like a short hymn, a, a short song sung to honor the Lord. And that's the word doxazo. It means just that. It means to honor. It means to, to exalt. It means to, to magnify. Right? We see, especially in the Psalms, the Bible talks about magnifying the Lord. And stop and think about that phrase for a second, to magnify the Lord. What does that mean? To magnify. Any of you guys have little magnifying glasses when you were kids? You know, I remember I had one when I was little, and I used it to burn bugs, to carve my name onto things, to start fires. But that's not what they're for, right? The primary purpose of a magnifying glass is to magnify things, right? To make things look bigger. To see things in, in more detail. To show more detail about the item that you're looking at. And, and, and that's the idea with this word here, doxazo, to, to glorify. It means to, to make it look bigger, to show it more clearly in more detail. And so as we're talking about glorifying the Lord, as we're talking about magnifying the Lord, we're talking about revealing the details of who he is so that everyone around us can see them. And so Jesus says, Father, let everyone see me. Let everyone know who I am, so that I can let them know who you are. Jesus says, make my name known, so that I can make your name known. Make my name known, so I can proclaim you to the whole world through what I'm about to do on the cross. For you have granted, and, and Jesus kind of switches here, and he starts to refer to himself in the third person for a few verses. He says, For you have granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
there is no place on earth that Jesus doesn't have full authority over. There is no person on earth that Jesus doesn't have full authority over that. And and we need to, to see that here and to understand that, that God the Father has given Jesus, God the Son, full authority over all creation, over everything and everyone. In Colossians 1.15, St. Paul says this, referring to Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And, be, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So note a couple things Paul says there. He says all things were created through him and for him. And that he holds all things together. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. He created the visible and the invisible, and he holds it all together. He is an absolute authority over all things, all people, all the time. And look what Jesus says. For you have granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So Jesus says, I give eternal life to everyone that you have given me. And Jesus says something interesting here. Basically, he says this. He says, the Father gives the Son certain people, and those people inherit eternal life. And it appears to say that God picks certain people to be saved. And the biblical term for that is he elects them, right? And, you know, we just moved out of election season. And I was going to say we're looking forward to the next election, but I don't think anybody's looking forward to it. But right, we're, we're gearing up for the next election season. And, and when we have elections, right, we're choosing something. We're choosing between different options. You're right, those, those who were elected for office, they've been chosen. When we talk about the, the president-elect, it means the president who has just been chosen. And, and election, or being the elect in a biblical sense, it means to be chosen. And so, is that saying that God the Father elects some people and doesn't elect others? That he chooses some people for heaven and by default chooses other people for hell? And this is kind of hard theological territory that we're delving into here, isn't it? It's sort of dipping into the deep into the pool a little bit. That God chooses some and doesn't choose others? And what if What if God didn't choose me? What if I'm not one of the elect? Do I not have a say in the matter? The Bible clearly says that God chooses. But it also says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. It also says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. It also says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
So do you want to know if you're one of the elect? You want to know if you're one of the chosen ones? Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Walk with him. And then you're one of the elect. Then you're one of the chosen ones. Remember what it says in Peter. It says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Sometimes people think, well, I want to become a Christian, but what if Jesus didn't pick me for his team? What if I got what what if what if I was the last one standing and nobody picked me for their team like dodgeball in third grade? Some old wounds. Listen, Jesus died so that every man, woman, and child who desires to be saved from their sins could be. We need but cry out to him. And doing that, falling at the feet of God, pleading the blood of Jesus, proves that we are among the elect. It proves that we are the ones chosen by God for eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, this is eternal life, he says in verse 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, and this is eternal life. Jesus is saying, look, there's not a lot of different ways to eternal life. There's one way, and this is the way, to know God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And this word here, gnosko, it implies an experiential knowledge, not just an intellectual knowledge. And I know you guys have all heard analogies like this before, but there's a difference, right, between knowing George Washington and knowing George Washington. I know George Washington in that I know who he is, right? I know who he did. I, I, I know what he looks like from his paintings, or mostly from the quarter, right? I, 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 know his, I know his silhouette, but I don't know the man. I've never met him personally. I don't know his, <clears throat> his personality. My wife, on the other hand, I, I know her. I look at her, and I can usually tell what she's thinking. I know what she's about to say. I know what she likes and she doesn't like. <clears throat> I spent time with her. I have a relationship with her. We're in our 25th year of marriage. And so, so, so that's sort of the idea. The, the idea here, the difference between like knowing about God and this gnosko, to know God, to experience God. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says that we need to experience God. We need to have a relationship with God. We need to have intimacy with the Lord. In fact, Jesus says that's the only way to eternal life. That's the only way to heaven is to have an intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. He says there's no other way. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Luke there says, look, Jesus is the only way. The mosque down the street or the Baha'i temple or Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or Buddhists or any of the other things, those are, those are dead ends according to Jesus, according to the Lord. Jesus says, listen, I am it. If you want to go to heaven, if you want eternal life, you have to have a relationship with me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen, church. 
all about Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. And I don't mean like it's a magic word that we can just chant Jesus over and over again like a spell. Right? The power isn't in the letters. The power isn't in the syllables. You don't have to say Yeshua just right to, in order to get the power, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the authority behind the name, the power behind the name. Sort of like this. You know, my family mostly drives Toyotas. We have a couple Land Cruisers in a truck, and, and they're great trucks, and, and they run forever. Uh, but I don't buy the trucks just because they say Toyota on them. Right? I buy them for what's behind the name, right? The reputation behind the name what it stands for, what it means. And that's sort of the same idea here. There's authority behind the name of Jesus. That, that Colossians 1.15 authority that we were just talking about. How he's the, the creator and sustainer of all things, that he holds all things together. And it goes on to verse 4. I have brought glory to you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The Lord says, look, I brought you glory, Father. I lifted you up. I made you known. I've done what I came to do. Now I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to come back to you. I'm ready to come back to the glory that I had before as, as God the Son. Again, that Colossians 1.15 glory, right? The glory of the one who, who spoke creation into existence. The creator and sustainer of life. I have revealed you, verse 6, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. <coughs> Jesus says, look, I have revealed you. I've revealed your name to the ones you gave me. Some of your translations might say, I have manifested your name. I've made your name known. Right? Jesus didn't just, he didn't just teach. He revealed the character of the Father through his character, through his actions, through his attitudes. And I think that's important for us to understand. As believers, as Christians, as disciples, our Christian witness isn't just words. It isn't just what we say or what we post online, right? It's, it's how we live. It's the way we live our lives before the Father. In verse 6, it says, they were yours. And I like the New Living Translation. It says, they were always yours. Another big topic kind of revealing itself here, and it kind of ties in with that first theological topic we talked about, this idea of, of predestination. Predestination simply says that God already knows who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. And so we're predestined and that we're, that we're already booked, right? We already have our tickets to our final destination. And it's not in the sense that God says, I'm creating you for heaven and you for hell, that we don't have a choice in the matter. What it's saying is that, that he already knows who's going to choose to believe in Jesus and who isn't. 
He already knows who's going to go to heaven and who isn't. Right? It's kind of referred to as, as predestination according to foreknowledge. And Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says, for, them, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He foreknew who was going to be saved, and he gave them tickets to heaven. It's basically how that works. Jesus says, they were always yours. From an eternal perspective, those who are the elect, those who are predestined for salvation, have always belonged to the Father. And he says, they have obeyed your word. Now they know, verse 7, that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus says, the disciples, they've kept your word. They've been faithful to what they taught them. They knew with certainty, Jesus says, who I am and where I came from. And, you know, the disciples, as we will see as, as the gospel unfolds, they certainly haven't gotten everything yet. They didn't have a perfect understanding of theology. They didn't have a perfect understanding of, of eschatology and soteriology and in pneumatology and all these different things. But they knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was God in the flesh. They knew that he came from heaven. They understood the basic elements of his teaching. And that's a good point for us. Because sometimes I meet people, and, and they'll say something along these lines. You know, I, 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 feel, I feel called to ministry. I, I want to evangelize. I want to serve in the church. I want to I be used by God. But I think I, I have to go to Bible college first. I need to go to seminary first. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with those things. If people want to go to Bible college, I encourage that. If people want to go to seminary, absolutely, we need scholars to, to study the Word. But here's the thing. We don't have to have a perfect knowledge of the Word to serve the Lord. We don't have to have a complete grasp of theology to serve the Lord. We don't have to have it all down theologically to be a disciple. We need to have a basic knowledge of the word. We need to love God. And we need to be willing to be used. And, and that's it, right? We need to love God, know his word, and be willing to be stretched a little bit. And if we have those qualities, the Lord will use us. He'll move. He'll, he'll, he'll use us in amazing, crazy ways. And look at so many of us Calvary pastors. Not a lot of us are super qualified, right? But we were willing. I'll, I'll tell you, nobody ever looked at me and said, wow, I bet you would make a great pastor. And I'll tell you, when I was young, I was an idiot. I dropped out of high school twice, always doing stupid stuff. I was super punk rock, loud, obnoxious, crazy. But the Lord got a hold of me, and I said, Lord, here I am. Use me. And the Lord said, okay. And that, by the way, is my only qualification. But here I am. Use me. 
changes each one of us when we come before him with that attitude. He says in verse 9, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. It's a big claim to make, isn't it, to the Lord? All you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Jesus says, the things that I'm praying right now, this specific prayer isn't for the entire world. He says, I'm praying for my people right now. And that's, of course, not to say that Jesus didn't love and care for everyone else. Right? We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Just saying that the focus of this prayer at this time was on the disciples. And I want to note verse 20. We're not going to get there today, but look what he says in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In our minds, as we look at this prayer, Jesus is just praying for the ones who are gathered around him at that moment. But Jesus says, look, I'm not just praying for the 12 or the 11, as it were. I'm not just praying for those who are gathered around me right now. He says, I'm praying for, (coughs) for everyone who will receive their message. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.23. The former high priests, or the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So he says, under the old system, there were lots of priests. There were lots of high priests. And they would go before the Lord and represent the people and, and pray for the people. But the trouble was, they kept dying. And they kept having to get new ones because they kept dying. But he goes on in verse 24 and he says, But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He says Jesus lives forever and his priesthood lasts forever. And I love what he says then in verse 25. And he says that he is able to save to the uttermost. I love that phrase, don't you? That he's able to save to the uttermost. That he's able to save completely, absolutely, all the way, forever. And I want you guys to get that and understand that. As long as we're venturing into deep water theologically today, let me say this. Don't ever let anyone fool you into thinking that you can get saved and then you can lose your salvation on Friday night and then you can get saved again. When you are genuinely, honestly, really saved, Scripture teaches that you are saved completely holy, totally, for all eternity, that you're saved to the uttermost. And I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save. Sweet, isn't it? He is able to once and forever save those who come to God through him. Genuine salvation only happens once, and it lasts for all eternity. And if you guys disagree, that's cool. You can email me. I have a little delete button right on my keyboard, and I can just 
push it all I want. But I believe that that's the clear teaching of Scripture. He always lives to make intercession for his kingdom. He always intercedes with God on their behalf. Jesus goes to the Father on your behalf and on my behalf, and he prays for us continually. And something that's interesting to me as a pastor, a lot of people come to me and they ask me to pray for them, to pray for healing, to pray for their family, to pray for strength, and, 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 and it's a great privilege, and I love to do that. I love to pray, people, and I, I think that we should do that. It's why we do it every Sunday. That's why I'm over on the side of being able to pray for people, for anyone who needs it. But, but we need to understand something. As a pastor, I don't have any special access to God. Right? There's no pastoral superpowers. Just because I'm a pastor, I don't have a, a backstage pass. I don't have all access. I'm not just a little bit closer to the Lord than you guys are. We all have the same access to the Father. And we don't need to go through a pastor or a priest to get to God. All we need is Jesus. He is the mediator between God and man. We have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who's there with us praying for us, leading us into his presence. I like how the King James translates it. He ever liveth to make intercession for you. What a beautiful encouragement that is, isn't it? He ever liveth to make intercession for me. Always praying for me. Always advocating for me to the Father. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. <clears throat> this is the last verse we're going to look at this morning. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to leave this world. He says, I'm getting ready to go home. I'm going back soon. But my guys, my people, they're, they're still going to be here in the world. And things are going to get real tough for them real soon. And Jesus says, you have given me your name. You've given me your full authority and power, Father. He says, please use that same power. Use that same authority to protect the disciples, to watch over them, to keep them safe. So they'll be united as we are united. Later in the chapter, Jesus continues to pray for unity among the disciples. And throughout the New Testament, this, this idea of Christian unity comes up over and over again. And we've talked about this a lot of times. But we talk about it a lot because it's in the Scripture a lot. And because it's so important. This idea of unity in the body. <clears throat> the body has lots of parts. And all the parts have to be working together in order for the body to function, right? If I want to go to the store, I have to have my two feet operating together to walk. I have to have my eyes to, to see where I'm going. 
My brain has to interpret the information. My back and my abs have to hold my body upright. And if I start removing parts, I pop out an eye here, a leg there. The body can't get around very well, can it? And we've talked about this before. So often in our physical bodies, when a tiny thing is out of order, we can barely move, right? When you get a little ingrown toenail or a broken toe or a blister, it's like you're a zombie dragging yourself across the street. You can barely move. In order for us to function as we should as a church body, we need to have unity. We need to have love for one another. No divisions. And as soon as those divisions start to come in, this group in the church bickering with that group, gossiping and backbiting, the church body becomes ineffective. And the enemy knows that. The enemy understands <clears throat> that the best way to stop a church from doing what it's supposed to do is to get the church fighting with each other. Fights within the church body. One church body fighting against another church body. You know, he did this to me. She said that to me. This church body dresses this way. They do that way. Or maybe we're holding on to past grudges. Before he was saved, he was like this. And I don't really believe that he's changed, so I'm not going to trust him. I'm not going to receive him into the church. I saw a lot of that in Belize. Because it was such a, a small community. You know, people have a lot of history with each other. So many people packed in a dense area. <clears throat> and sometimes people would get saved and they would come to church and other people in the church would struggle seeing that person in the church because they remember what they used to be like. There's this one lady in our church and she had a, a pretty good-sized scar on her face. And um, one day this other lady started coming to church. And as soon as she started coming to church... I could sense that there was tension between these two ladies. Both kind of like stiff around each other and hello. But it was clear that they didn't want to be around each other. And so I asked the one lady, I said, I said, what's up with your, your mom and this other lady? And the girl, she said, well, my mom and her, they got into a fight when they were young. And the other lady had a broken beer bottle and Slashed her on the face. And I thought, I thought that only happened in movies. Right? But they had this past history, and it was hard for them to get along. But as they surrendered that to the Lord, the Lord healed that relationship, and they, and they served in ministry together. And, and I thought, man, that is such a great example. that We need to be able to move beyond our past. They move beyond their past. Not look at what they were, but look at who they are in Christ now. We need to understand that the enemy's tactic is to divide and conquer. Because if he can divide us, if we can get us battling each other, we won't be battling him. Sometimes I give my kids chores in the backyard. I'll tell them, oh, I want you to clean the backyard, I want you to stack the firewood, I want you to rake, I want you to do whatever. And I'll come back and, and nothing will be done. Every time, pretty much. Every time. I don't, I don't know that anything's ever gotten done. But, but I'll say, what happened? Well, Silas did this to me. No, it was Eva. She did this. Uh-uh, it was Isaiah. He punched me first. Right? And every time, that's how it is. The kids.
bickering and fighting. And what happens? Nothing happens, right? None of the chores get done. And the same is true in the church, guys. The same is true in the kingdom. If we're fighting and bickering with our brothers and sisters within the church, we can't focus on the enemy. We're doing the devil's work, not about the Father's business. So I want to be aware of that. I believe that, that so much of our, our little petty arguments and our divisions in the church, I believe that a lot of those things, guys, and I don't like to overly spiritualize things. I'm not like that. But I believe a lot of those things are satanically inspired. They're demonically designed to stop the work of the church proceeding in our lives and in the life of our church body. And so when you see those things, just stop. Put a stop to it. Don't be a part of it. Refuse to engage in those things. If someone upsets you, don't react. Pray for patience. If I upset you, don't react. Pray for patience. That's what my wife does. It seems to work for her. Right? Pray for the Lord to change. Pray for the Lord to change you so you don't get upset so easily. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What great advice that is for us, isn't it? As far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. We as the church, we as individual members of the church, need to do our part to allow the body of Christ to walk in unity. That's all I have for today. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We're so grateful as we examine John chapter 17, this first part. We're so grateful that, that you have us in mind, Lord, that you have us in your hearts, that you're thinking on us and you're praying for us, Lord, interceding on our behalf. And I pray that we could take rest and comfort in that. And Father, I just pray for us as a church, our church body, the church at large, that we would just unify, that there wouldn't be petty personal disagreements or theological arguments, Lord, that, that we could come together in love and in unity and advance the kingdom. We ask that in your name, Jesus.